Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Sadly, Asaph didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't have that part of God's revelation unfolded to him yet. And understand the, the, the fullness, a greater, even more beautiful picture of God's goodness and kindness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would send His Son, knowing all of our sin, God would send His Son to take our sin upon His shoulders, to die on the cross in our place, to pay for our sins in full, to rise from the grave. And then be the Savior, offering salvation to any who would place their faith and trust in Him. Talk about the goodness of God. We see it when we lift our eyes to Jesus. Even without that understanding of Jesus, Asaph knew about the goodness of God. And he opens Psalm 73 that way. He says to us in verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel. He begins there, and if you have... We're listening to the psalm carefully. Asaph ends there as well. He says again in the final couple of verses, Truly, or indeed, it is good for me to draw near to God. Goodness is found in the presence of God. God is good. Asaph begins and ends there, but in the middle, he takes us on the journey that he experienced, where he began to slip from that truth. He he puts it in those words in verse 2. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped away. He began to kind of drift from that confidence in God's goodness as he looked with jealousy at the prosperity of others around him. Specifically, those who were not seeking to live for God, the wicked. As Asaph walks us through his own journey, our desire today is to walk with him. This psalm is a teaching psalm. Asaph's being transparent here and explaining. He actually calls himself foolish and ignorant down in verse 22, like a beast before God. (laughs) I love his humility as he looks back at his own temptation to jealousy and God's kindness to him in that and This psalm becomes a way of of teaching us through the act of worship how to battle envy and jealousy, how to return to God as our fixture of singular delight and desire. And so let's consider that together this morning. When your heart fails, draw near to God to find satisfaction in His presence. This is what Asaph does. His heart is failing. He's drifting from God. In fact, the word heart comes up, I think it's six times through this psalm. This is a psalm of the heart. And as Asaph's own heart began to fail and drift away from the Lord, he returns to God. He draws near to God. And in the presence of God, Asaph's heart is satisfied. And so that's what we want to see today as well as we work through this text to find satisfaction in the presence of God. As we follow Asaph's path, we begin by following his path downward. 
The section of the psalm where Asaph describes what his slipping was like as his heart began to fail and be drawn away from God. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 16. And as we look at those verses, you're going to notice how Asaph describes what he saw in the lives of the wicked, those opposed to God. He begins that description in verse 4, but already in verse 3 you notice he says, when I saw. So this is Asaph describing his viewpoint. That description concludes in verse 12, and there as kind of a bookend, there in verse 12, Asaph says, behold... See, these are the ungodly. This is what he saw. But you're going to notice as we read his description that his description or what he saw was distorted by his jealousy. It wasn't reality. Asaph's view of the wicked began to get twisted, and so even his eyes were deceiving him. I'll try to point that out to you as we work through these verses, and you see how sin began to twist Asaph's view of the world. So what we're going to learn in this section is that, number one, we need to watch out for sin that distorts reality and troubles our hearts. Watch out. This is what Asaph's doing in the beginning of the psalm. He's saying, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. This is a warning to the reader. Listen up, reader. Don't let this happen to you as well. Watch out for the jealousy in your heart. The slippery slope, you could say. That slowly will pull you away from a confidence in God's goodness and a delight in His presence. Watch out as sin can distort reality and trouble our hearts. So, in verse 4, Asaph begins to describe what he saw in the lives of the wicked. He says in verse 4, there are no pangs in their death. There's no pain in their death. And they just, they live without pain, it seemed to Asaph. He may even be implying that it doesn't even seem like they die. (laughs) That's a bit distorted of a view, isn't it? He says their strength is firm at the end of verse 4. It seems like they're always strong. Again, it's not really true, is it? This is what he's seeing. Verse 5, they're not in trouble like other men. They don't face difficulty. They're not plagued. They don't get sick like other people. Not quite accurate, is it? But this is how he sees things. You can kind of sense the distortion that sin has caused in his view of the world. Verse 6, therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. This is an interesting verse. I think he's saying that pride and violence, which are two things that Asaph used to see as evil and wicked, sort of look good on them, like a necklace or a garment. All of a sudden, pride and violence have become somewhat attractive to Asaph. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. Boy, there's a statement. It it means that their eyes are fat with their wealth. They have so much left over, so much riches, that it almost looks like even their eyes are bulging. So there you go. There's there's an interesting phrase for you to imagine. The end of verse 7, they have more than hearts could wish. This is starting to sound like a Disney song here. Asaph looks at their lives and says, they have everything a heart could ever wish for. Again, it's not reality. It's just his view and it's distorted by sin. 
Verse 8 and 9, he talks about the way they talk, the way they speak. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They, they make fun of oppressing people. It's not a big deal. He mentions that they speak loftily. They're proud and high in the way that they talk. They're above everybody else. They set their mouth against the heavens. This means they actually speak against God. And with their tongue, they walk through the earth. So they're proud, speaking, even blasphemy against God. They, everywhere they go, they talk this way, seemingly without punishment. Verse 10 is hard to interpret. It can be translated a few different ways. I think it means that the wicked have even gained a following. They're popular. People return to them. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. They just just use things up wastefully. They don't care if others have their needs met. In verse 11, they actually begin questioning God. Does God really know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We're living how we want and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Kind of a a thing. And so in verse 12, Asaph says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Do you see the distortion there again? They're always, everything's easy for them and they increase in riches. Well, surely that wasn't true for every wicked person. But Asaph's heart has become jealous and envious, and so his view of the world has become distorted. But notice his response now. This is what he's seen, but now he shows us his response in his heart in verses 13 through 16. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. It was a waste For me to have confessed my sin and to try to clean up my life for God is in vain. I I, I work so hard at all these things to please the Lord and the wicked are the ones who are prospering. You see the frustration in his heart. It's one we can relate to. You've probably felt it before. He says in verse 14, all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. (laughs) Here I am trying to follow God and all I get are plagues and trouble. And it's similar words to what are used back in verse 5 when he describes the wicked, that they don't have any trouble and they don't have any plagues. So he's begging that question, what's the point of living for God if, if th- those who don't seem to have no trouble at all, and as I try to live for God, I just face trouble and chastening and persecution. What's the point? In verse 15, he reflects on one of the dangers that God protected him from. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Now remember, Asaph is a worship leader. He served in the time of David and even into the reign of Solomon. And so he's reflecting back, I think, on where his heart was at. And I think with just this moment of clarity, realizing, oh, Man, if I, had, if I had spoken these thoughts out loud as I led the congregation in worship, I would have led them astray, would have been untrue to your people and your congregation. And so verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. The phrase is troublesome in my eyes. 
he was troubled in his heart over this disparity. Here he is trying to live for God and he's facing difficulty and challenges and there the wicked are and they seem to just have it easy and they're rich and all these things that Asaph lists off for us. He's reminding us of the slippery slope of envy. We look at our lives, we look at the lives of others, and we begin to think that what they have is good. And it would be better. My life would be better if I had what they had. We look at our efforts to please God, and then something difficult happens that we didn't want, we didn't ask for. And we look at somebody else who doesn't have it, and we say, well, why was I working so hard for the Lord if He's not going to you know, take all the troubles away from my life? What was the point? Now, Asaph's going to help us see where, where that thinking is wrong. But so far, we just need to pause here and remember, this is a temptation of the human heart. We can easily begin to slip down this steep slope of envy. Sin begins to distort our view of reality. We begin to say of others, oh, well, what they have is good. If I had that, I'd feel a lot better about things. Or the opposite, if I didn't have this thing in my life, things would be good. Suddenly that word good begins to be defined in our terms instead of God's terms. God who alone is good and knows what is good. So watch out for sin that distorts reality and troubles your heart. You know, this is how advertising works. It plays on this very mechanism in the human heart. (laughs) We see a commercial, the most famous of which are maybe those infomercials, you know, that go on for a half an hour. And we begin to think to ourselves, you know, I think it's true. I think my life would be better with that thing. I don't think I have any knives that can cut through a shoe. I'm pretty sure my vacuum can't suck up 1,000 Cheerios. These are things I need in my life. I wonder if my blender could make a smoothie in less than 10 seconds, right? Things we had no idea we needed or wanted. All of a sudden, we, we see, oh, that's way better than the thing I have. I think I need that. That would be good for me, right? What are we doing? We're, we're taking the definition of good and we're adapting it to our desires and what we want. And, ah, oh, yes, I know what's best for me. This is the very slippery slope of envy and jealousy and discontentment. We had the opportunity uh, actually yesterday to listen to one of those presentations. Somebody comes into your home and they show you their product and how it all works and, uh, I got to walk through this very experience myself. I saw this incredible product, and it really was, surprisingly, how well it worked and all these things. And within minutes, I found myself needing something that 30 minutes earlier, I had no idea was missing from my life. (laughs) Now, we didn't make the purchase, you'll be happy to know. But it was there. I'm watching this presentation. This is amazing. Why don't we have one of these, right? See, we get so easily distorted and twisted in our view of the world and what is good and what God has given. And the point is that we instead need to be looking and trusting in God. 
Watch out for that distorting work of envy and comparison in your own heart and life. Comparison is natural to us. We're always looking, always evaluating, always comparing. Which checkout line is the shortest, right? And so I picked this one, and the guy in the red shirt picked that one. All right, let's see who wins. We, we do this all the time. We're always comparing and evaluating. Even as we pull up to church, right, we notice, oh, so-and-so got a new car. I wonder how much that costs, right? We compare, and our view of the world begins to become distorted as we begin to question, well, that seems really good for them. Maybe God's not being good to me. But it's short-sighted. It doesn't see the whole picture. We only see what we want to see. When we're jealous of others, we don't see the full picture or the full story. When we're jealous of the the popular and wealthy, we don't see the inner emptiness that might plague them. When we're jealous of those who don't care about God's instructions and do whatever they want, it looks like they have so much fun, but we don't see the pain and heartache of sin. Sin begins to lead to doubts about God's goodness. We take our definition of good above God's definition of good. We think someone else has what would be good for us. James chapter 1 describes this very progression. James talks about how no one is tempted by God, but we are drawn away from God by our own desires. Well, God hasn't given that to me, so I'm going to go after it. And we're drawn away from God. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. See, the problem of envy is it blinds us to the end of the path. That to turn away from God, to find something that I think is good for myself, ignoring what God has given, is death. When we set our affections on temporal things, coveting things that others have, we begin sliding down the slippery slope of envy. Watch out for sin that distorts reality and troubles your heart. Verse 17 is a happy verse. Asaph now reveals to us the great turn. He said in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood understood their end. He went to worship He went into the sanctuary of God, the presence of God. He drew near to God and the the light of God's glory, the revelation of God. We don't know what was happening in the sanctuary on that day. If it's some kind of worship service, if there's a reading of scripture or a song that they sang together. But God used something to open his eyes and remember. Oh, it may look like the wicked are prospering in this life, but I know the end that God has for them. And no matter how much they prosper in this life, their end is the same and it's in the hands of God, and it's destruction. And that's what he goes on to explain. Verse 18, surely you've set them in slippery places. Do you notice the transition there? Asaph's heart was the one slipping away in envy, but now he says they're the ones who are in the slippery position. 
He says, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, they're brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors as with when one awakes from a dream. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Verse 20 even seems to imply that there's like this dreamlike state of the wicked, thinking that they have the good life, thinking that everything's at ease, but one day they'll wake up to reality and they'll stand before the judge. So Asaph, having gone to worship, having turned his eyes upon the Lord, now sees the full picture, the eternal picture, and he trusts again in the promises of God. What we learn from this second section, number two, is to turn to God for a true view of reality. Sin begins to distort our view, and so be wary of trusting yourself. Be wary of trusting that what you see in someone else's life might be good for you too. You don't know that. Returning to worship of God is where we see with clarity again. It's the word of God and the glory of God that shines light into our lives to help us to see what is right and wrong. Turn to God for a true view of reality. I mentioned that presentation that I watched uh, yesterday. Uh, one of the parts of the presentation uh, to sell this item, and I won't give you all the details about it, but was uh, they scraped something on our carpet and then uh, shined a light down to show some of the, uh, the dust and particulates that, you know, uh, float up into the air. And uh, so before, you know, she did that, I was thinking to myself, well, our our carpet's really clean. We vacuum it regularly, and uh, uh, none of you are going to want to come to my house after this, I think. But anyway, we vacuum it regularly, and so, of course, my, ha- my carpet's going to... So I'm kind of thinking to myself, eh, we'll see how this goes. You know, so she scrapes it up, and I didn't see a thing. I'm like, yeah, perfect. Well, then she turned the light on, right? And so in that stream of light were all these dust particles, you know, floating around. I'm like, ooh, I guess my carpet is a little more, more dirty than I realized. Why? Because light has that effect, was it that the dust was never there in the first place, and the light, you know, brought the dust into the room, and the light was sourced in the du- or the dust was sourced in the light? No, of course, it was already there. But in the normal day-to-day activities, we don't really see it, do we? But you shine a light on it, and all of a sudden, I see more of the truth about what's around me. So this is what happens with the glory of God; it reveals. Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians, that it's the light of God's glory that exposes our sin. John talked about this, or or Jesus talked about this in John chapter 3. Why was it that men did not receive Jesus Christ, the light of the world who came to reveal our evil works because they loved their evil deeds? See, God's light reveals reality. God's glory reveals the sin around us and in our hearts. So friends, do not be deceived by sin. This is actually exactly what James says in James chapter 1. I I quoted to you verses 13 through 15 where when we're drawn away from God, uh, uh, desire turns into sin, sin turns into death. The very next thing James says is, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. You see, sin and envy and jealousy and discontent in our heart would seek to draw us away from Him. But we must see the end of the path is death. 
Don't be deceived. Instead, turn to God from whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes. You won't find it anywhere else. His path is the only path that leads to satisfaction and joy and life. So return to worship. It may be that your heart has begun down that slippery slope. I'm so glad that you're here today. This is where Asaph saw clarity again in the gathering of, for worship of God's people. Now there it was Israel. Here we are gathered together today to sing God's praises, to open God's word, that the light of God's glory might shine in our hearts and reveal how my view of the world has become distorted again. To remember his promises and to see reality as God sees it. This is why worship is so important. It's important for us as we pursue the next steps as a church That we not get too attached to our view of reality, but keep coming back to God and His Word and to see what He says as valuable and important. This is why it's important that the Word be opened regularly as God's tool for helping us to see where our hearts have gone astray and to come back to Him. This is why it's important for us to see eternity with eyes of faith. Scripture talks a lot about this. We look to things eternal. We look to things unseen. Because this changes life, doesn't it? Just a couple days ago, I read Jesus' instruction about storing up treasure in heaven. And when met with confusion, he gave the parable of the rich man who had all the grain and so to himself was saying, "Ah, I'm going to make life good. I'm going to build my grain houses and store them all up. And in the parable, God actually says to the man, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you and everything you've stored up will be given to someone else. So Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven See, the picture of eternity, like with Asaph here, the picture of eternity changes everything. This life is for the next life. This helps us understand our trials and troubles and tribulations and difficulties, and it reorients the way we see what is good, that a possession might actually not be good for me because I might get attached to it and begin worshiping it and stop storing up treasure in heaven, that a trial does eternal good in my life. That it makes me more like Jesus and I can rejoice in it and it will result in reward forevermore. That nothing in this life is wasted because of the goodness of God. See, eternity changes everything. And so like Asaph, we must not let the deceptiveness of sin keep our eyes on this life. But instead, as we lift our eyes to the glory of God, we see the full picture. And we can live again for eternity. But this is not the only revelation that God helps Asaph with. Not only does he see the the failure of the wicked, ah, they're prospering now, but they will be destroyed. Asaph also sees his own heart. Notice in verses 21 through 24. He says, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. And that sounds kind of like his previous statement in verse 16. But here he's vexed and pained in his heart over his own sin. Notice what he says in verse 22. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. 
Asaph recognizes that his own heart had become jealous and envious. And now with this picture of God's glory in the sanctuary, he sees more clearly not only the end of the wicked, that the, the, the things they're doing would not be good for him, but he now sees the own sinfulness of his heart. I was foolish and ignorant. This is what a fresh view of God does in our hearts. That same light that shined on the others and showed the dust floating around in their lives now shines in our hearts and we begin to see, oh, there's dust and cobwebs in my heart too. So Asaph confesses out loud here in, here in this song of worship for Israel. I love, I love the transparency here. But then in verse 23, we notice that his confession doesn't lead to despair. His confession leads to confidence in God. Notice what he says. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph's perspective is still eternal here. And he knows that even though he sinned, even though his heart has been disloyal to God, this is idolatry. Even though he's committed idolatry, he confesses to God, you've not gone anywhere. You're still with me. And I'm in your presence and you hold me by my right hand. Often we hear of God's right hand. God's right hand will do something with strength. But this is like Asaph, the little child with his hand up. And there's the father with his hand down, holding Asaph by the right hand. You're always with me, he says. I confess, I was jealous and I was wrong. I was ignorant, but you're here. You've not, you've not gone anywhere. But it's not just now that Asaph rejoices in God's presence. He looks to the future. You will guide me with your counsel. Asaph has returned to a place of confidence in God's word. You have what I need, Father. Your word will help me take these next steps. But not just that, he says in verse 24, and afterward, receive me to glory. He's looking to eternity. He knows his end. He knows the end of the wicked And he finds his confidence in God. You'll carry me even into eternity. This is just an incredible statement of confession. And it leads us to this third point today. Confess your sin and draw near to God. When your heart fails and you're seeking to find satisfaction in other things, the way that we draw near to God to find satisfaction in Him is that we then confess our sin and draw near to God. To say before him, I was foolish and ignorant. I sinned, but I trust you. You've not gone anywhere. You hold me. To express that confidence in God's forgiveness because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Though it's not directly in James chapter 1, James does talk about this in James 4. That process of humbling ourselves, James has just confronted his readers about their own spiritual idolatry. He calls it in terms of adultery. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Idolatry. But then, he reminds them that the Spirit of God in them yearns jealously and gives more grace. God's not gone anywhere. He then instructs them how they can get right with God. Humble yourselves in the sight of God. And what will God do? He will lift you up. 
confess your sins, lament and mourn and weep. You see, Asaph, having seen the glory of God, that God hasn't gone anywhere, God's walking with him, God's taking care of him, he's broken about what's going on in his heart. He confesses it to God and draws near to God. It's a beautiful turn in this psalm. Maybe that's where you are today. You've, you've never turned to God for salvation. Confessing your sin to Him, acknowledging that because of your sin, you face the judgment of the wicked that Asaph describes here in this psalm. That on judgment day, because all you have to claim before God are your own works, they will be declared unrighteous. And you'll face an eternity of God's just judgment for sin. But God has provided a way of salvation. Asaph had trusted in God and knew of God's salvation. For us today, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. Friend, would you turn to Jesus for salvation, recognizing that your works will be declared unrighteous? Only Jesus can solve that problem because He washes away all of your sin, even your righteousnesses, which are as filthy rags, And he replaces it with his divine righteousness, having paid for your sins at the cross. That when you stand before the Father, he looks upon the righteousness of his Son and grants you entrance into his eternal kingdom. Praise God. Would you know this salvation today by trusting in Jesus Christ? If you have done that, maybe you've forgotten that God is the perfect provider. He's the Savior. He's the one. You've maybe begun to seek satisfaction in, every, in other things. Confess your idolatry today. Maybe you're frustrated with God because of something He's allowed in your life. Confess that bitterness today. Turn away from it. God is sovereign and He does what is good. Submit. Don't let the deceit The lies of envy and bitterness and hardness of heart creep into your life. Bow before the holy God today. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from Him. The longing in your soul, as you know, cannot be solved with possessions or people or a high-powered vacuum cleaner. It comes alone from a right relationship with God. This is where satisfaction is found. This is the message of the scriptures through and through. And it's why I said, I think Psalm 73 is the key to the Christian life. Salvation is the start. Don't misunderstand me. But living the Christian life is found in desiring God alone. That's it. And Asaph walks us through his own testimony of how he came back to that place. David knew it. In Psalm 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love uh, one of the translations of that. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all I need. That's it. That's it. When your heart fails, draw near to God. Asaph closes the psalm in verses 25 through 28 by just expressing his, his delight in God. I mean, listen to these statements. You heard them read already, but this is just rich 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That phrase, the strength of my heart, it's literally the word rock. And so all through the psalm, Asaph has described the weakness of his own heart, that looking at the circumstances of others, he knows his heart will continue to fail. He's admitting, I'm going to continue to struggle with this. My heart and my flesh may fail, but what does he need? He needs God, the rock of his heart. God's his strength. God will walk with him through every temptation and trial and trouble and be his good provider. And so Asaph concludes, Who is there in heaven for me to desire? What what is there on earth for me to desire apart from you? And the clear, resounding answer is there's nothing apart from God. God is the desire of Asaph and should be for us as well. And so he concludes with confidence in verse 27 and 28. Indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed those who desert you for harlot tree. It's interesting now in verse 27 how he describes the wicked. Before, they were the ones who were at ease and have all the stuff. But now he says, those who are far from you. Asaph's viewing the world in the right way now. There's just two kinds of people. Those who through the blood of Jesus Christ have been brought near to God and those who are far from him. And Asaph says, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you, who leave God for idolatry, for something, a pleasure in something else. Verse 28, his conclusion, but it is good for me to draw near to God. Really, this could be translated as kind of a statement of confidence, kind of like Joshua's, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here, it could be translated this way, but as for me, it's good to draw near to God. This is Asaph's conclusion back to where he started when he said, truly, God is good to Israel. Now he's returned to that right perspective again and says to the congregation of Israel as they sing his song of temptation in worship, he says, but as for me, It's good to draw near to God. It's in His presence that I find satisfaction. So I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Asaph's life, he intends it to be one of trust and declaration. I'll trust the Lord and I'll declare His goodness over and over and over again. Trust the Lord, declare His goodness. Trust the Lord, declare His goodness. What a testimony. So in this final section, we learn that we satisfy our hearts in God's presence. This is what Asaph does. He comes into the presence of God, and there he finds satisfaction. There he delights in God and actually confesses, there's nothing else that I desire, you alone. It begs the question, is it really possible to desire God alone? Yes, When we desire and delight in God alone, everything else falls into place. But shouldn't we want food? That's the first thing I think of. Of course. But that desire is rightly ordered when it flows out of a desire and delight in God. We don't want food in itself. I know that sounds crazy to say that. 
We should only want it as a good gift from God, given to help us as stewards of the good bodies that God has given to us. See, it all flows out of a delight in God alone. Then when He is supreme and our singular desire, not just first desire, but singular desire, we get to enjoy all His good gifts that He provides as reminders of our delight in Him. Ultimately, our desires for Him is Him alone, and we find satisfaction in God. He's all that we need. May I encourage you, as a Christian, to work at developing your affection for God, your love for Him. There are many Christians that have never done this or even know how to do this. Many Christians are stuck simply trying to obey God with more willpower and then calling that love. God makes love clear in the Scriptures. It's not merely obedience, is it? Love is a product of all three aspects of the inner person, intellect, emotion, and will. That's why the Scriptures speak so often about worship and delight and praise and love for God. Develop your affections for God in worship, what we're doing here today, in personal worship, your time with Him, to open the Scriptures, not for instructions for the day, but to delight in God. If you've never thought about this or spent much time thinking about this, this is one of my favorite conversations to have. I'd love to get lunch with you or do a Bible study with you and talk about what it means to grow your love for God. Invite another believer to do it with you, to think about what it means to find satisfaction in your heart in God alone. Asaph has been transparent and explained to us that when our hearts fail, we should draw near to God to find satisfaction in His presence. And so I just want to close with a brief personal testimony. I could speak with Asaph about the wickedness of my own heart. As a, uh, as a man, I was born with sinful desires, uh, even good desires, we might say. As a young man, I can remember thinking ahead in my life and expecting that uh, I would get married and, and have kids. You know, you get asked those questions through the years, right? Where do you see yourself in 25 years? I guess you have to be pretty young for that one. I remember specifically being asked, what's your life going to be like at 35? Right? I'm just past that now. And so you, you, know, you put out these uh, answers. Well, I'll probably have this and probably have this and probably have that. One of the things that I desired was to have kids. And looking ahead in my life, figured that, you know, that'd probably be something that was true in my life when I came to that point. And, of course, you know, as a, as a good Christian, I expressed all of the, you know, natural caveats. If the Lord allows, and so on and so forth. But in my heart, that was a desire, right, that I wanted. Now, as I share the rest of the story... I want to be very clear, like Asaph, this is not a story about me. This is a story about God's goodness. So as my life unfolded, it became clearer and clearer that children was not a good gift that God intended for me. 
And it was certainly a temptation to look at the lives of others and think, well, they have kids, look how much fun they have. Every time a a baby is born, every time you see children around the church or other places, the temptation is there to begin to think to myself, has God really been good to me? Wouldn't my life be better if I had kids? That temptation is real. And like Asaph, I can say my heart is weak and my flesh fails. But I can also say that God is good. He, in his kindness to me, has worked in my heart and in Carrie's, if she were up here testifying to you today as well, to just utter confidence in his goodness. And no matter what happens in my life, whatever God provides, I am supremely confident, at least right now, that God is good. And what he has given to me or not given to me is good. Truly. I don't know whether having children would be a good thing for me. In fact, I can tell you that I know it's not. Because if it were, I would have them. That's how good our God is. That's how good the truth of of James 1.17 is. I have it memorized for a reason. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. Listen to this part. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, he does not fail to be good ever. You can trust him. And so with Asaph, I say to you, draw near to God. Find satisfaction in your heart in him and him alone. And know that whatever he has given or not given in your life is from his goodness. Trust him in that. Step back and see his glory. See the picture of eternity. Look at how he's using it in your life to make you more like Jesus, to gain wealth forevermore in his perfect kingdom. Set your heart and your affections there. Just enjoy him. He's good. And whatever he gives is good. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And to God be the glory.